From the National Training Center in Fort Irwin, this is The Middle of Everywhere, sharing stories about real people and real life at the U.S. Army's Premier Combat Training Center. I'm Cody Kozacek. Heritage is a celebration. Heritage is being proud of being native. And one way that we continue to celebrate is our native gatherings, is our uh, native coming together, and our powwows, our wachipis, our ceremonies. Those are our ways of coming together and celebrating, but not only celebrating within ourselves, but celebrating with other non-native people that honor us and recognize us. That was Lupe Lopez, founder and owner of the Red Boy Production Company. She was speaking at the Native American Heritage Month celebration, hosted earlier this month by the Fort Irwin Medical Department Activity and Equal Opportunity Office. Heritage is the theme of our episode today and we have a lot of it here at the National Training Center. Our first guest will be Coral Edgington, the installation archeologist here on Fort Irwin. She will describe the landscape that met this region's earliest human inhabitants, a landscape vastly different than the one we live in today, when water filled the dry lake beds and mammoths roamed the hills. Then we will hear more from Ms. Lopez about her work to dispel stereotypes and keep the region's Native American heritage alive. Finally, our own Ken Dryley will join us to discuss the early beginnings of Fort Irwin. First, here's a few news updates. It's hard to believe, but Veterans Day was already almost two weeks ago. Fort Irwin was well represented at various ceremonies and parades around the high desert, including the annual observance at Mountain View Cemetery and Memorial Park in Barstow. Fort Irwin Garrison Commander Colonel Seth Crumrick said it was an honor to speak at the event. I'd say first it's an honor to come down here and talk. One, it's our community, so these are our partners that we live and work with every day. Uh, but then to recognize those that were veterans that had served before, especially the disabled veterans that put this on, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to come down and, and just reiterate what we should do every day, which is honor their sacrifices and all their great work. Garrison Command Sergeant Major Daniel O'Brien also thanked the organizers for the chance to recognize our nation's veterans. It's very important that we uh, recognize our veterans and uh, their service and current and past. So uh, they did a great job out here in Barstow with the community and uh, we enjoyed being a part of it. And it's nice to see the, uh, the community so uh, brought together during this time to uh, be able to celebrate such a great day. Also this month, the Military and Civilian Spouses Club of Fort Irwin awarded 33 community grants to support unit activities and organizations on post. Several of the grants were awarded to teachers and student groups at Fort Irwin Middle School, where they will be used to supplement student leadership programs and purchase classroom supplies. The school's principal, Heidi Chavez, said the grants help offer students opportunities that they would not have otherwise. As some of you may not know that the funding we receive through our district deals with impact aid, which is a federal um, income. Well, that funding has been cut over the years, so our district readily, heavily relies on that funding, and without that funding, we are seeing a decrease in uh, money coming in to provide these extra things for our students. So we thank 
the, mil the MCSC with all we have. And it's officially the holiday season now. Fort Irwin will kick off festivities on December 1st with MWR's annual holiday market and tree lighting ceremony from 4 to 8 p.m. at Samuel Adams. There will be lots of shopping and crafts available, food, a hot cocoa bar, and of course, the tree lighting at 6 p.m. in the town center. And that's your news update. Joining us now is Coral Edgington. She's the installation archaeologist here at Fort Irwin in the Directorate of Public Works. Coral, thanks so much for being with us today. Absolutely. And we're here to talk a little bit about the, the heritage of Fort Irwin. Um, November, we celebrate um, Native American Heritage Month mm -hmm. in the Army, and it's also just a time with Thanksgiving to look back and kind of see where we came from, uh, what the history of this place is. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, could you first of all just tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be an archaeologist out here at Fort Irwin? Sure. Um, I'm actually a fifth generation native Californian, so I guess it makes sense that I would end up back at Fort Irwin. Um, I did my undergraduate degree at UC San Diego in Near Eastern Archaeology and I worked in Jordan. Um, and then I did my master's degree at Texas A&M actually in maritime archaeology and I worked in Spain and uh, Australia. So I actually am probably the only nautical archaeologist um, working, working in the middle of a landlocked desert. Uh, but we have joked a few times that we do have technically water sources at Fort Irwin. So if at some point I decide to go diving in the Garlic Springs well, it'll at least be to say that I, I've done it kind right. of thing. So. And uh, Fort Irwin, you just mentioned that we have water sources here. You might not always be able to see them or right. where they are. Uh, we're in the Mojave Desert. but. If you look on a map, there's a lot of names, place names around here, Bicycle Lake, you know, you see those big flat areas. Mm. Um, what was this area like in the past? I mean, how is it different than it is now? Uh, answering that question would kind of depend on how far back in time you want right. to go. Um, so if we really just want to focus on the period of human occupation um, in this desert, you know, you kind of want to talk about an era, an epoch that's called the Pleistocene. Um, human occupation started uh, at the end of the Pleistocene, the late Pleistocene. Um, we commonly refer to this era as the Ice Age. Um, so when you think about the climate in that time period, um, the Pleistocene itself goes anywhere from 2.6 million years ago to 12,000 years ago. Um, human occupation, realistically, the, the late Pleistocene we're talking about, the environment, would have been about 450,000 to 18,000 years ago. That's not to say that humans existed that entire time, but that's the environment into which they would have come. Um, and during that era, all these dry lake beds on the landscape that you see now would have been full of water. Uh, they would have supported a very diverse ecosystem, which included megafauna. So we're talking about very large mammals, woolly mammoth, um, the Columbian mammoth, uh, large sloth, horse, um, saber-toothed cats, those things you think of as a child when you learn about the Ice Age. This environment did support that. In order to support such large mammals, we also had quite abundant vegetation around these lake beds. So it was a very lush environment. Um, when humans arrived on the landscape, um, exactly when that is is kind of debatable. They would have come into an environment with a lot of game to hunt and um, a lot of plant stuff to forage. You said it's very lush. Mm -hmm. I guess what were the kind of the living conditions for the first communities that were out here? Um, well, the first communities that were out here, the, the time frame is debatable. Some people think it might have been as early as 70,000 years ago, um, but that is based on the Calico Early Man site, and we're not entirely sure if those are archaeological remains or not. But 
a pretty solid time frame that we're looking at. Um, remnants from archaeological sites around China Lake date to 45,000 years ago. Uh, Mannix Lake dates more to 25,000 years ago. Um, on Fort Irwin, if we just generally say 14,000 years ago, that's that's a pretty good time frame. So the humans that, that were living in that period um, would have come into an environment where the climate was much cooler than it is now. Um, there was much more abundant rainfall. Uh, there was much more abundant vegetation, especially around what we see now as dry lake beds. Um, for, you know, a couple hundred meters, you would have had very lush, very green environment um, and additional foodstuffs and plant sources throughout the environment that we no longer have. Extinct plant sources, extinct animal sources. So like the mammoth, that they would have hunted for subsistence. Um, they would have foraged a lot of these plant stuffs, more wild grains, more wild um, nuts that they could have utilized in certain ways that didn't require any processing. You could just pick them up and use them. Um, they would have lived in small hunter-gatherer bands. Um, and stuck relatively near the water sources because there wasn't any reason to move away from them. I, I imagine at some point the climate changed mm -hmm. to what we have today, oh, yeah. and how did that affect um, the communities that we're living out here now? So um, our earliest archaeological sites that we have here would date to what we call the Clovis period, um, and that ranges from about 10,000 to 8,000 B.C., uh, that environment is still this late Pleistocene environment that I'm talking about, um, where people lived in hunter-gatherer groups, they hunted megafauna, and they, they relied on plant sources, but not very heavily. Um, they stayed near their, their lake beds, um, and they just kind of lived in a, a relatively lush environment. Kind of at the end of that period, the environment began to shift from the Pleistocene to the Holocene, which is the epoch that we're in now. Um, and that shift increased temperatures, but didn't increase rainfall. Um, because the temperatures increased, there were more glacial melts, so you get more streams and rivulets and springs and things like that. So in order to accommodate that, people, the lake started drying up, they moved towards the springs, and by the end of that period, I would say around 7,000 BC, um, those dry lake beds were, were relatively dry. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so uh, because they rely so much on rainfall, they're pluvial lakes, um, at that period, because there was so much less rainfall, people were living more around springs and rivers. And we still do have quite a few of those, you know, Garlic Spring, Bitter Spring, Cave Springs. Um, and the entire area out by the Tefert Beach, kind of Langford MSR, that's an entire wash area that was just full of small streams and rivers um, that were either due to the glacial melt or flooding from the Mojave River, which was a very large river at that period of time. Um, and then the worst, I would say, the worst climactic period that the Fort Irwin area has ever seen was um, probably between 5,000 and 4,000 BC. It was so dry out here and so uninhabitable that there was a cultural hiatus. Um, the archaeological record doesn't have a lot of archaeological sites that date to that time frame. And there was kind of a break in culture. Um, the stone tools that we recover, that we see, looked entirely different up until that point. Then there was a cultural hiatus. and. After that, a, a new technology transitions in. It's indicative of people moving in from other areas. Um, the environment after that period, it's about 4,000 BC, was pretty much what it is today. Uh, of course, you work for the Director of Public Works mm -hmm. here, and I'm not sure if everyone really knows um, that we have an archaeology program or right. what you guys do. So can you tell us a little bit about how um, you try to study and also preserve what we have um, here on Fort Irwin. Yeah, I, so Fort Irwin has been conducting archaeological studies since the 80s, um, since training really intensified out here. And despite the fact that we've been working since the 80s, uh, working tirelessly to survey the installation to 100%, we only have about 
47% of the installation surveyed. Um, and out of that, we've identified about 1,560 archeological sites. Um, so the largest portion of, of my job, I'm the installation archeologist, there are four contract archeologists that also work to support this, um, is going out and conducting surveys, identifying archeological sites on the landscape. Um, then we have to apply a certain set of federal criteria to determine whether or not those archeological sites meet eligibility for the National Register of Historic Places and what type of protection they need to be awarded on the landscape. So for the sites that do meet those criteria and are protected, um, they are off limits on all of our standard issue maps. Uh, the majority of them are fenced, they're signed as such, and then we work with the training elements on the landscape to educate them on where the resources are located so that they know to avoid them, um, let us know if there have been any impacts, things like that. They get no fire restricted fire zones around them if they're out in the training areas. Uh, we just try to reduce the amount of damage caused by training to them as much as possible. And when you're talking about a site, um, what type of thing are you talking about if people, I mean, because I'm not sure if everyone out there would recognize right. it as a site. And I mean, what is it like? That's kind of the point. I mean, we don't call a lot of attention to the archaeological program probably for the reason that we don't want people traveling out into the box, which is active training areas, and thinking that they're going to go tour archaeological sites. Um, it's dangerous right. <laughs> for the individuals that are interested in that, but it's also dangerous for the archaeological sites. Um, they are awarded federal protection. So a site can, can be anything from a small concentration of flaked stone um, to a large village habitation site. It can be anything from a single petroglyph on a panel of, of rock to um, an entire district of petroglyphs. You mentioned you don't want people going out looking for these types mm -hmm. of things on Fort Irwin or in the box for obvious reasons, right. um, hazards, that sort of thing. But if people are interested in learning more about um, early human communities out here in mm -hmm. the Mojave Desert, do you have a recommendation for where people can go to safely do that, um, any of the parks or national preserves around here? Yeah, a couple recommendations. If you want to know specifically about what's on Fort Irwin, you can come see us at DPW Environmental. We have an entire outreach building. Um, it's the Threatened and Endangered Species Facility. Um, and it is dedicated to educating the community on the biological and cultural um, elements of the landscape at Fort Irwin. So we talk about the desert tortoise, we talk about the rattlesnakes, but we also talk about ancient humans, their subsistent culture, and the sites that we have out here. So um, we can arrange kind of informative group meetings we do sometimes for the Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts and classes and whatnot. Um, but we can do that for parents and community members at any time. Just give us a call and let us know. Um, because any type of program that's committed to protection of a resource really needs to start with education. Um, so if you want to be educated, just contact EPW Environmental. And I think I'm going to shift gears a little bit here because um, we talk about these sites, or you talked about surveying, and there's been right. about 47% that we've done, mm -hmm. and you've been working since the 80s. Um, I think a lot of people view history as this thing that's sort of already set, we already know about, it's in a textbook. Um, but when you're actually going out trying to piece these things together and figure out how um, these people lived, I guess, how much do we really know about that? And are there any sort of projects that you're working on right now that you're excited, especially excited about? Right. Nothing is static. We have a general chronology, a general time frame for understanding the Mojave Desert. 
Um, there's two or three really well accepted time frames out there, but there's there are still debatable questions. But nothing is ever fully exhausted. One of our goals as archaeologists is to never fully excavate something. You always want to leave something in place. You always want to preserve some component of history for future generations. Um, furthermore, consultation with modern Native Americans a lot of times yields a sentiment that they don't always want to disturb the landscape. If we aren't absolutely sure we're going to learn something significant about the archaeological record, the last thing you want to do is disturb a site because it destroys the context. You're essentially destroying heritage um, that the people to whom that heritage belongs would prefer it be left in place. So you have to be very conscientious of that, which is why when we do an undertaking on Fort Irwin, um, whether it's a training-related undertaking or building a new building out in the training areas, we consult with 12 federally recognized Native American tribes. We let them know what it is we're planning on doing, where it is we're going to do it, what we know about the archaeological record in that area, and, and request that they inform us if they have any concerns or engage us if they have any questions. Um, and I do consistently talk to a few Native American tribes about projects that we have going on, um, and we sometimes do augment them uh, because the tribes prefer it be carried out in a different way. So it's all about having open communication. So to wrap up, I just wanted to ask you if there's one thing that you could pick. I know there's probably lots, um, but what do you find the most fascinating personally about this region's heritage or um, what do you really want to share with people? Um, I think it's funny. We, you know, at our internal commander's call or whatnot, um, we sometimes talk about how we're a ready and resilient community. Um, and we absolutely are, but I, I think the first and foremost ready and resilient communities that ever existed on this landscape were absolutely the Native American peoples. Um, talk about subsisting in a harsh environment. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, so I think the most fascinating thing about this region's heritage um, would be how resilient and persistent the people that developed their cultural complexes here are, um, were and are today because that's fascinating. To exist in this environment like we talked about during a period where there is no water in the lakes, we don't have air conditioning, we don't have refrigeration, um, you can't just go to the KFC or go to the Popeyes and get your food source. You're literally utilizing whatever you have on the landscape and you're absolutely making it work. Um, that's admirable and beautiful. Uh, and that type of, of people to have grown up in such a harsh landscape environment um, and to have such a beautiful culture today you know, that still flourishes in these communities, that still produces beautiful heritage and beautiful art and beautiful folklore and is a living, breathing community that arose from this environment. That's amazing. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Lupe Lopez is doing her best to keep those cultures and that heritage alive. Earlier this month, Ms. Lopez and the Red Boy Production Company spoke and performed during Fort Irwin's Native American Heritage Month celebration. Per capita, Native Americans serve in the U.S. military at a higher rate than any other ethnicity. The event honored their many contributions to the Army and offered a chance for the Fort Irwin community to learn more about Native American culture. Here, Lopez explains why this type of outreach is so important. Hello everyone, my name is uh, Lupi Lopez Donaghy and I'm from the Otomiyaki Nations, currently residing in Orange County, California. I am the founder owner of the Red Boy Production Company. It's a family dance troupe and we also bring in other uh, guests when we travel along for bigger shows. 
We bring to you the oldest instrument of the Western Hemisphere, the sacred drum, and our singers and our dancers. because we wanted to share our culture and dance exhibition, but we also wanted to address um, the misunderstandings and stereotypes that, that is out there on Native Americans. And so if we, if we ever had these kinds of presentations, if we already had any, uh, if we continue to do this, then, then we can uh, diminish the stereotypes and the misunderstandings and I'm so happy that Fort Irwin is a part of that correction process and I am so happy that Fort Irwin um, is a model that every agency should do something like this because there's a lot of misconceptions about the status of Native Americans that they opinionate without consulting and this is why the business was formed. These are our lands. When we hear things that people say to other ethnicity groups of, where are you from? And they say they're from these countries, that countries. When they ask us, where are you from? we say, we are from here. We have no home anywhere else. We don't have homes in European countries or anywhere else, but this is it. And so if this is our home for the next future generations, we would do everything that it takes to protect these lands. We share who we are and we voice ourselves and we kindly correct the misunderstandings and the misperceptions. But we do it constantly. And that's one of the challenges as American Indians is that we have to, we're always out there having to prove someone wrong. We're always out there trying to prove who we really are. We're always, every day, trying to prove our existence. There are 562 tribes here in the United States, and as Native people, we are a small population, and it wasn't our doing that why we are a small population. <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, it has to do with manifest destiny and, uh, and many other factors of why our population is so small. But we also need the assistance of the non-native. And if you are in a roundtable discussion, or you, if you are in an international planning committee, diversity committee, or any kind of planning that has to do with land, consult Native Americans, invite them to the table. Today, Native American peoples continuously become marginalized, continuously not be invited to the tables. And we are the original first peoples. We should be the first ones invited. And that's the voice that 
non-natives can carry out for us. And I really appreciate the EEO here at Fort Irwin because they outreached to us. Maybe they didn't know in the beginning who to call or where to go to, but they made a point of outreaching to Red Boy Productions, and I'm sure they've outreached to others in the past. But that's the loyalty that you you put out there to say, let's do something and let's bring them together here. Heritage is really the story of what makes us, how we got here, whose footsteps we're following. And here to tell us a little bit about our Army heritage here at Fort Irwin is Ken Dryley from our own public affairs office. Ken has researched and written extensively about the history of Fort Irwin, and you can read his articles in the High Desert Warrior newspaper available on the Fort Irwin website. And uh, Ken, thanks for joining us today. Hey, always glad to be here. Uh, So... Ken is here to tell us a little bit about the more recent history of Fort Irwin and how we developed from this little spot in the desert into the National Training Center, um, the Army's you know, center for training units from all over the country. The crown jewel of National right, of the crown Training Center. <laughs> That's right. For, <laughs> during the Vietnam era, you told me a really cool story about, uh, I believe it was the concrete... Uh, a donkey yep. that they made. Yep. Can you well, tell us that story. Yeah, that's and that's a something that a lot of people don't really really know. It's it's actually the beginning of, of our painted rocks, which is you know our most famous landmark here at Fort Irwin. So in the early 1960s, the commander of uh, Fort Irwin was a gentleman by the name of uh, Colonel Osborne, and he was a big history nut, he loved history, and he was out in the area near Bitter Springs, where like I said, a lot of the 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 early activity here at Fort Irwin was in that area because of the water. And they found what's called an arista. It's an old Spanish, the name is Spanish, but it's an old, old crushing circle. So what they would do is they would put this, this circle of stones, put a post in the center with a, a post coming off 90 degrees. And the 90 degree post, one side of it would be hooked up to a really, really, really big rock. And the other side, they would, they would hook it up to a burrow or a donkey. And that donkey or burrow would walk in a circle, dragging that rock on the other side, 180 degrees away from it. And you put your raw silver or gold ore in there, and that would crush it down and smash it into smaller pieces. And then you would consider, continue processing it and eventually end up with your finished gold or silver. Well, he found one out at Bitter Springs, and he liked it. So he decided to move it. So he had the 36 Engineer Battalion disassemble it, move it onto post, and they reassembled it in the park next to the officers club which we now know as jackrabbit park and so the the engineers put this thing back together and you can still see it on the um it would be the east end of jackrabbit park parts of it are still there but so they finished it and general osborne came out and looked at it and he said that's really great but um there's no donkey and the engineers are like yeah we're engineers you know we're not animal handlers he goes no he goes you could make one and they're like we can't make a donkey and Obviously, he's the commander. They're not. So they tried to make a donkey. Well, it took them four tries before they got one that, that Colonel Osborne was, was happy with. And they, they put it up there. It was made out of concrete and chicken wire. It looked a little silly, but it looked good enough. <laughs> so they built it. They put it up there. The whole thing's finished now. Everybody's happy. And then the next unit deployed to Vietnam. It happened to be an um, artillery unit, the Red Legs. 
Well, that morning they got up and the burrow was bright red. It was artillery red. So they repainted it gray. Then an infantry unit left. Next morning, it's infantry blue. They repainted it gray. A signal unit left. Now, they got a little creative. They actually painted a signal blanket on it. So they were, they were much more creative with the signal guys. So they repainted it. And actually, there's a story that was in the uh, newspaper at the time. Uh, the newspaper at the time was called Tank Tracks. And there was a story in Tank Tracks that there was actually a shortage of gray paint at Fort Irwin because they had to keep repainting the borough. <laughs> so that went on and on and on for quite some time. And then finally, the 36 engineers were going to de- deploy to Vietnam. Well, it was their borough. They made it. They had a, a personal connection to this, and they were not going to deface it. So what happened was three members of the unit went out to the, a big pile of rocks out just past the front gate where they wouldn't get caught, and they painted the seahorse patch of the 36th up on those rocks. And they painted kind of so it's facing towards the post. So as you're leaving the post, it's real obvious. So that was actually the very first unit patch on painted rocks. And if, you, if you're leaving out of here and you, you look closely, one of the, not on the main set of rocks that we see today, but on the set just before it, that's right next to it, as you're leaving post, you can see that seahorse patch is still there. And you could just make out the original white uh, outline of the square that they had painted on there to paint it. Now, it's been repainted, and there's another unit that takes care of it to make sure that it stays. But that is that is the very first insignia on painted rocks. Now, so now the big question is, is what happened to the borough? Right. And why is the borough not still in the park? Well, like I said, they were deploying to Vietnam. So they get to Vietnam, and all your equipment's packed in this big metal container. We call them connexes. And they started unloading the connexes from Fort Irwin, and all of a sudden, there's the borough. It's in the connex. So it's like, okay, the borough's here. Well, General Osborne, or excuse me, Colonel Osborne, is not happy because his borough is gone. And he was attached to the borough. Well, he found out that they took it to Vietnam. So he wrote a letter to the commander of the 36th and said, hey, I want my borough back. And the commander of the 36th said, well, you know, I can't just ship a borough to, to California. So he said, let me look into it and see what happens. So the colonel in Vietnam, got together with the guys and talked to them, and nobody would admit to having put the borough in the connex. So that colonel wrote back to Osborne and said, Sir, uh, I'm sorry, but nobody put him in there. So my only assumption is is that he came of his own free will and accord, and I'm not going to force him to go back to the desert. (laughs) Wanted to go to Vietnam. He did. Apparently he wanted a change of scenery. So that borough stayed in Vietnam, and Colonel Osborne, his... His only, his only request was that they send a photograph of the borough back to him. And there, there is a photograph of the sergeant major, the colonel, and the borough at their headquarters in, in Vietnam. Wow. So, and apparently he didn't come back. Didn't. It's permanent vacation. Permanent. permanent. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing some of the stories about here. I, I know you're kind of an encyclopedia with uh, these sorts of things. So That's, Next time let's talk about, we can talk about some of the, um, a lot of people don't know how many movies and television shows have been out, done out here. We can talk about that a little bit the next time, I think. Great. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. That wraps up our show for today. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you heard, please subscribe for free to the Middle of Everywhere podcast available through the iTunes store. Listen for our fourth episode on December 7th.
The Middle of Everywhere is a production of the NTC and Fort Irwin Public Affairs Office for informational purposes. It does not represent any endorsement, implied or actual, by the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, Fort Irwin, or the National Training Center.